If you turn your, your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we'll pick up where we left off from last week. This is one of those transitional texts, those transitional passages that um, is very significant. I've been waiting to get here uh, very anxiously. And uh, next week we'll have a topical about the scriptures, as I said, and then we'll transition to more practical manners, uh, matters in chapter 5. But uh, I've titled this, The Preeminence of the Word in Worship. The Preeminence of the Word. Uh, preeminence, that, that's a significant, substantial word. A quick uh, search in the dictionary provides us with several synonyms. Superiority, supremacy, greatness, excellence. Prominence, predominance, eminence, and prestige. Is the word of God still, does it remain preeminent in our day? Does it remain preeminent in the churches? Have times changed? Is it acceptable to permit anything to unseat the word of God from its position of prominence? Either uh, entertainment or emotion or sound effects. Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, we see that Paul writes to Timothy in the church concerning the previous passage that we just studied last week. And that was instructing us to constantly be nourished on the Word of God, on sound doctrine, which produces godliness. And he says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, Prescribe and teach these things. Some translations use the word command. Command and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, Paul says to Timothy, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed upon you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands of the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do, this will ensure salvation for both yourself and and for those who hear you. Prescribe and teach these things. This is a command. It is a prescription for the church. It's not a suggestion for the church. The prominence of God's word is to remain in corporate worship. And I'll be entirely honest here when I speak to you about this. The scripture reading time is my favorite time. It's a favorite segment of the service for me. I, I like the music also. Gerald does a great job with the music. The, the prayer is very edifying. The preaching, eh, you know. But the scripture stands on its own legs when you read it. It proclaims itself. Unlike a sermon which usually uh, requires the pastor to, to be able to explain, articulate it. Hopefully uh, people will embrace that. The message he's trying to convey. The Bible it's, declares itself when you read it, by comparison. You know, the German reformer Martin Luther once said about Scripture, he talked about defend Scripture, he, he's quoted as saying this, The Bible is like a lion. 
It does not need to be defended. Just turn it loose and it will defend itself. So it is with the Word of God. And throughout history, the public reading of Scripture has always been central and essential to corporate worship. We saw a few moments ago that that Ezra, as he read the book of the law, the essential component of reading Scripture, we see it practiced throughout church history, at least until late. And we see it embraced by Jesus himself. In the, in the Gospel of Luke, this is very early in Christ's earthly ministry, the three years, we find that Jesus himself is publicly reading the Scriptures. And in Luke chapter 4, it records that Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. This is his hometown. And as, he was, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. Notice, Jesus had a custom of standing up and reading the scriptures. This wasn't a one-time event. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it is written, quote, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Amen. Amen. The scripture says that Jesus closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And Jesus began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I anticipate that that Satan would have loved to have silenced Jesus that day. Would have loved to have silenced the reading of the scriptures that day as it was declared, just simply through Jesus reading God's word, we have the gospel. And and this was Jesus' custom. It was Israel's custom. And Paul commands that we preserve it as our custom. Commands it. And and, you know, Satan has been trying to silence the scripture, silence, silence the reading of God's word ever since then. He's been quite successful in removing the scripture reading from services the Word of God actually from its preeminent position in worship. And, and, and that's partially because, you know, the reading of the Scriptures, the teaching of the Word of God, that's a stumbling block to unbelievers. And if you're wanting to draw in a lot of unbelievers and really pack your place out, you're going to have to minimize some of those things that are stumbling blocks. So some churches, they, they've removed the reading and simply substituted that with adding a couple more songs. Add a couple songs. Because supposedly people would rather feel Jesus than actually listen to what Jesus said. And you know, we we do have to admit, when the lights are turned down low, and the smoke machine is churning out that smoke, the strobe lights are flashing about, you know, it does become a little bit awkward then to raise the lights up so that people can actually read along with the Bible. It would kind of spoil the mood, wouldn't it? So many places simply have eliminated that portion, Scripture reading. I remember a church that Rita and I went to a while back that they preserved the Scripture reading even though the lights were turned down low uh, through about a 35-minute um, uh, continuous music, um, continuous singing. And they kept the lights down so low except where the guy read, you couldn't see your own Bible. 
You couldn't follow along, you couldn't open it, there's no use to open it. The guy read the scripture still, but nobody was following along. Because it just would have spoiled the mood to raise the lights up again. And it is surely possible for, for the word to lose its preeminence if we're not mindful, if we're not careful about it. Because people would really be told, like to be told nice things. Rather than, as in Ezra Day, when they were cut to the heart, when they were pierced, when their sin was exposed, and then, and then to actually be led to have to understand that word as the priests taught it, and be convicted of sins, that would be horrible to be sent away crying, wouldn't it? Because it hurts sometimes. The word hurts. Yet there is rejoicing because God is our Savior. He has saved us from all the things that we have done wrong when we were in Christ Jesus. So do you see the difference between those, those two mindsets? When the objective is pre- preserving the individual's mood, their experience, their, their uh, delight, when you're, when you're focused on preserving that, the Word of God really needs to be marginalized or silenced because it doesn't preserve that real well a lot of the time. But when the Scriptures are declared, people are troubled by sins, they're troubled by failures, um, in actuality, the re- repeated failures that we have, they bring glory to the one who saved us. They bring glory to our Savior. So, so the scriptures will often cause us to weep, but the salvation given by Jesus Christ gives us reason to celebrate and feast. So it brings glory to God to read the scriptures. And, and the reason that Satan so badly wants to silence the scriptures in reading and in general, it's very obvious. Look with me at the second half of verse 16. Regarding the reading of Scripture, the exhortation and the teaching, we're told that these are going to ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. That's the reason that Satan wants to silence the Word of God and, and remove it from its prominent place of worship is because salvation hangs in the balance. Here's a principle that we need to understand. Nobody ever gets saved apart from the declaration of God's word. Nobody. Romans 10.17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. God has in his sovereign power ordained that people would be used to take the exclusive message exclusively through the word so that people might be saved. He uses us as his vessels. Imagine that. What a privilege it is to be his ambassadors. But people are saved exclusively through the human declaration of the word of God. Uh, It's not through a personal experience. It's not through a vision that you're saved. It's not through a feeling. It's not from a voice that comes to you out of nowhere. It's not even by a particular prayer or even by walking an aisle. That's not how you're saved. You're saved exclusively through the proclamation of and the hearing of the gospel. How beautiful are the feet that bring the good news of good things. And this is why Satan wants to distract churches toward everything else but the word of God. Because it is the vessel through which people are saved. In 2 Timothy 3.14 It says, you, Timothy, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which make one wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. 
Hearing and receiving the Scriptures are how people get saved. The Holy Word is the instrument the Holy Spirit uh, has divinely used to transform hearts and implant saving faith. It is through the Word of God. Very familiar text, James 1.21 says this, In humility receive the Word implanted, which is able to save your souls. The Word saves. Our responsibility is to declare it to people. To take that message to folks. Ephesians 1.13 says, In Christ also, you, after listening to the gospel, the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were then sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So you first hear the word, you believe through the Holy Spirit's sealing. You first have to hear that message of truth. There's no salvation without it. The declaration of the word is how we're born again. Just in case this is a little unclear, one more, one more verse for you here. 1 Peter 1.23 You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. That is how you are born again. The proclamation of the word through reading, through exhortation, and through teaching. So, so Satan knows that if he can silence, diminish, even marginalize the word, people aren't going to get saved. It's for this reason that, that Paul reminds us in, in verse 13 of our text today, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Give attention to that. That's what we do. You might ask, what's it mean to give attention to something? Uh, What does that mean? Does it mean we should maybe mention Scripture once in a while? Touch on a passage now and then? Maybe deliver a 30-minute sermon or message where somewhere on the screen you might flash up a a passage out of context. Maybe maybe a couple times during the message flash up a couple verses. Is that what devotion to or or, um, attention is? No. No. Attention here is devotion. You give devotion to these things, these three things. Number one, reading the scripture. That's our command. Number two, exhortation. Exhortation is a term that was used to describe the the explaining, the expositing, the the teaching of scripture. It's equal to what we talk about as preaching today. Exhortation and then teaching. Number three, teaching is a word that, that more described like a catechizing. Giving facts. Some of you probably went to uh, like Presbyterian or Lutheran catechism. And you remembered facts. You learned the Ten Commandments. You learned these things and you memorize them. That's teaching. Teaching of the facts of Scripture. And a combination of these should be included in all learning environments. Whether you're at home with your children. Whether you're here in Sunday school. VBS. Awana. Summer camps. Or a church service. A combination of scripture reading, exhortation, and teaching. In corporate gatherings, these are not optional. He said command, prescribe and teach these things. They are not optional at all. Look with me uh, at the repeated pleas that Paul gives uh, beginning in verse 15. He tells Timothy, take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them. So that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. I mean, your own teaching. 
Persevere in these things, Paul tells him. Why? Because people are going to get saved. That's how people are going to get saved. It's why 2 Timothy 4.2 tells us, uh, as again, Paul saying to Timothy, Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. That means all the time. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Some will not endure sound doctrine, it says. They will turn away. Their ears will be tickled. They'll turn aside to myths. And Paul continues finally, But you, Timothy, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry, Timothy. These passages together uh, reveal to us spiritual, uh, the spiritual giftedness of Timothy. He was that of an evangelist, of a pastor, and a teacher. That was his spiritual giftedness. So Paul says in verse 14, Do not neglect that spiritual gift that is within you. Don't neglect it. Timothy, you you, you have a gifting as an evangelist and, and a teacher and a preacher. Don't neglect it. You know, some people have come to envision an evangelist It's kind of like a high-pressure salesman that comes to town and you push real hard so that people will be saved. An evangelist is someone who teaches and explains and exhorts in the Scripture. In the Word of God. That is an evangelist. And, and, And they prayerfully have confidence in the faithfulness of Scripture to do what the, what the Word says it will do. They trust in the Holy Spirit to do His ministry of conviction. And that was in one of our songs. The, the, the ministry of conviction of the Holy Spirit. Uh, an evangelist and a teacher and, an, and a person who exhorts trusts in the Word of God to accomplish its work. That's the gift. And I believe the most potent aspect of Timothy's giftedness here was that strong conviction. When he would stand up, when he would proclaim it, when he would tell people about it, he believed it. He trusted it would do what God says it will do. It will regenerate the hearts of the unsaved. Not only that, it will make those of us who are saved more like Christ. It will sanctify us. We will be sanctified. Uh, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Not only are people saved through the word, they are sanctified through the word of God. Accomplishes the same purpose. Even our worship music is supposed to engage us in doctrines in the word of God. As it did earlier this morning, Colossians 3.16 says, this is our memory verse from men's discipleship this past week. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. The focus of songs is supposed to teach and admonish us. Sound in doctrine. Music's to be a vessel for God's word. It's it's an instrument to teach and admonish us, not to help us experience some warm fuzzies somehow. That's not the purpose of the word of God. It may happen. You might feel some warm fuzzies. Gerald might feel some warm fuzzies right now. But that's not the purpose. It's to teach and admonish us with the Word. So the Word is preeminent and dominant in all parts of worship, in prayer, in teaching, in in the songs, and those divine truths point us towards Christ. 
He himself, the Word, become flesh. He is the Word. In worship, you can't emphasize too much. Jesus Christ is the Word. John 1.1 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men, it says of Jesus. And in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh. Jesus Christ is the living Word of God. The Bible equates Jesus to the Word of God. You can't emphasize it too much. Old Testament, New Testament, it's all the same. The preaching of the Word, when done properly, brings glory to Jesus Christ as our Redeemer. It points to Him. So it is worship, cover to cover. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. All of it. That includes uh, the Gospels. It includes the Old Testament. It includes the passages we're studying today. All of it is useful. Not just parts of it. Satan will do anything that he can to redirect us from the Word of God. He'll, be, he'll, uh, he'll bring opposition from outside the church. He'll bring opposition from inside the church. Anything he can do to silence the Bible. And this is the reason that Paul warns Timothy in verse 12, Let no one look down upon your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity... Show yourself as as an example to those who believe. And by being an example of what the Bible teaches, in verse 15 it says, your progress will become evident to all. It will become evident. People will believe what you say when you live what you say. You live it as an example, they'll believe it. The Holy Spirit will use that. And, And you know, this is a very high calling for a man who is in his late 30s. 36, 37, 38, 39, somewhere in there, in there is where Timothy was, a young man. And these attacks were going to come. In fact, chapter 1 already told us that, that this battle for the Bible is on in Ephesus. We already learned that. There's all kinds of strange teaching going on. And so resistance to the Word, it's, it's not just textbook theory in a class for Timothy. He's living that. He's experiencing it. And he's sure to be marginalized by his detractors because of his youth. They're going to point at his youth. Guy's inexperienced. But that's not the truth, is it? Timothy wasn't inexperienced. As we previously learned, though he was young, he's not a novice. He's not new in the faith. He'd been working with Paul for close to 20 years. He had been battle-proven and battle-tested. He'd been in the mission field. He had learned... And for this reason, Paul says, let no one look down on your youthfulness. Don't let them do that. You know where you've been. And you know, verse 12, it's not intended for us to be a banner verse for um, possibly disrespectful teenagers or even some young adults who have never had a job, never paid their own bills, not even their own phone bill. That's not what it's here for. Um, it's, It's not for children to challenge their parents at 15 years old. And say, don't look down on my youthfulness. That's not what it's placed here for. (laughs) Timothy was battle-tested. And and in fact, if you have someone 26, 28 years old who's still living in your basement and they've never gone out into the world, go ahead, look down on their youthfulness. (laughs) That's that's fine. 
Timothy is a seasoned veteran of the mission field. He's been, he's been living it. He's been working it. And, and, and his leadership is still going to be challenged, as we're told here. So his walk is going to have to, to match his talk. For the, for the pastor, for the Bible teacher, for anyone, uh, orthodoxy, meaning correct belief, has to be accompanied by orthopraxy, correct practice. Belief and behavior. Sounds like a women's group that we're doing right now, led by Ruth on Wednesday evenings. Just throwing in a little promo there. (laughs) Behavior must match belief for all of us. And that's what Paul is saying here. And and so in chapter 5, Paul will tell us later on, deeds that are good are quite evident. Those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. Just just go after it, Timothy. Preach the word. You behave. um, Everything else will work its way out. Everything will work its way out. So Paul warns, pay close attention to yourself, to your own teaching, your practice, what you preach. Take pains in these things. Be absorbed in these things. Persevere in your teaching against all opposition. Don't be distracted. Preach the word. Preach the word. I'm not going to spend a lot of time today on verse 14. Probably disappoint you. That's talking about prophetic utterances, laying on of hands. We did speak to that some when we began 1 Timothy. We're going to go back there in in verse 22 of chapter 5. We're going to talk about laying on hands again. We're going to touch it later. So we don't have adequate time to flush that out today. Instead, I'd like to wrap up our time discussing resistance to the word in worship. The resistance that exists. Satan has deceived many churches into either minimizing the word in worship, marginalizing its authority, or even cherry-picking the word place to place to find things that are palatable, that people like. Bouncing around from place to place for things that are pleasing to the ears. Paul didn't do that. Paul said in Acts chapter 20, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel, not parts of it. We realize all scriptures God breathed. It's profitable, as we said. The red letters that Jesus spoke, no more or less inspired than what we're reading today in 1 Timothy. It's all the word of God. No difference. All is authoritative. Uh, But the pressures on pastors to capitulate from declaring the whole counsel of God, are enormous in our day. They are enormous. Uh, Resistance comes from outside the church. It comes from inside the church. You know, from outside the church, we have the obvious resentment of the Word of God. It's obvious. Uh, A nation that that used to, and in still many ways, identifies itself as Christian. It, It now calls for the removal of the Ten Commandments. Take down any cross, take down any allusion to Jesus Christ that is out there. Even want to do it on your own property. Uh, At the same time, they'll happily erect a monument made to mere man. They'll do that on public land, on private land, in parks. Monuments to men, both alive and dead, but to display a cross honoring Jesus Christ who died for our sins and rose from the grave, that's prohibited. That's where we're at in this culture today. That's the majority of America. We don't want to hear it. We don't want to hear it. 
And we, we should really expect that from our culture. They're spiritually dead. They're not saved. The majority of Americans don't believe the Bible. They don't. What's more troubling are the pressures from those who identify themselves as Christian to set aside the Word of God. That's even more troubling. Now, Pastor Weiler shared with me a quote this week I'm going to read to you. This is really handy. Re- reading in the books that we study, snap a photo of the page and then send it on. And he sent me one this week. It, it's a book called Preaching the Cross. We got this at uh, the pastor's convention up in Jacksonville back in January. And, and it is written, um, a cooperative work by, by some um, very respectable conservative theologians. We got Mark Dever, Ligon Duncan, Reverend Albert Moeller from Southwestern ba- the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, uh, C.J. Mahaney. There's also contributions from John MacArthur, John Piper, and R.C. Sproul. So this is a work of many people together, collaborative. Some real names in here. And, and uh, leading conservatives. It has a contribution from John MacArthur on page 146, writing this. When I came out of seminary, MacArthur says, I really did not expect the fight to fight the battles I have fought over the last four decades. I knew I would face some different paradigms of ministry and opinions about ecclesiology. That means just church government. He knew he'd find that. I understood, he says, that there were various views of eschatology and of biblical inspiration, etc. But John writes, I never thought I would spend most of my time on the broader evangelical front defending the biblical gospel and sound doctrine from so-called believers who attempt to undermine both. That's where Pastor MacArthur says he spends most of his time is defending the Bible from so-called Christians who are actually attempting to undermine it. And he is speaking the truth Um, The most threatening opposition to preserving God's word as preeminent in Christ's church comes from self-professing Christians. That is true. MacArthur experiences it. The apostles experienced it in their day. Timothy was experienced it in their day. We experience it in our day. And it happens. You know, you likely recall a couple couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, and and there was a, a couple, husband and wife, that came and spoke to Pastor Weiler. And they were looking for a church where they could express themselves freely however they wanted. And the man boasted that he was, if you, you know, quote Pastor Weiler, a flag-waving, banner-toting, tongue-speaking Pentecostal. And after a, an impassioned exchange, Gerald opened the Bible and challenged him with some scriptures and how he could, uh, could uh, recon, uh, reconcile that with scripture And the man's wife told Gerald that he was just spewing verses, remember? Just spewing the Bible. That was her take on it. Others distort the Bible. A visitor recently asserted to us wrongly that Jesus was Michael the Archangel. If you weren't here that Sunday, we talked about that. Um, And you know, Pastor Weiler and myself are really amazed at how often we are encountering this type of error now. Just here locally. Um, it's like it's all the time. And, and we wonder why they come here. Why do they come to, to, to little old Port St. Lucie Bible Church? Because, honestly, I could probably give you 
uh, a half dozen churches within 10 minutes of here where you could really believe and act any way you wanted to. Go there. Why are they coming here? Do we think that they're sent here as distractions to what we're doing? Yes. We do, we do believe that. But as Timothy experienced, these distractions from the word don't always come from outside the church. Very often, uh, we discover opposition comes from inside the church. And in Acts 20.30, Paul said this very same thing of the church in Ephesus, that Timothy is pastoring, from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. It happens. And sometimes it arises from within. Resistance to preaching the word of God in Ephesus and in Port St. Lucie exists. That's a fact. There's no need to ignore or pretend we don't experience that here. We have experienced it here. And um, over the last couple of years, I've personally been told, for example, that we shouldn't teach against charismaticism. We shouldn't do that. We had an evening service with videos on Sunday evenings, six or ten weeks. We were told that we shouldn't be doing that. We shouldn't be, shouldn't be talking about those things. It's false doctrine. We're going to compare it to the Word of God, and we're going to talk about it. We're not going to set it aside. The Bible reliably demonstrates what these things are. Reliably demonstrates it. And um, we find in the groups that turn to all kinds of emotional expressions, we've talked about this before, I'm not going to belabor it, that, that as those increase, the Word of God suffers. The attention put towards Christ is marginalized and it gets turned on to individuals. Pastor Weiler and I have also been advised that for us to become a successful church, we should emulate Joel Osteen. <laughs> I can't make this stuff up. And, and uh, it's been suggested that if we'd simply concentrate less on the literal teaching of God's word that people find offensive and if, if we would... would would more so tell people that, that God wants to prosper them, that we'd be able to pack this place out. That, that, that's the types of things that, that he and I are told. We're going to teach the Bible. That's what we're going to do. And um, it's been implied, you know, unless we begin to do that, we're going to stop giving. We've been told that. Perhaps one of the most glaring examples is several months ago, quite some time ago, Pastor Weiler and I were both told that we must stop teaching biblical creationism. If not, the individual said, I'll quit giving to the church. I may even quit attending the church. That is the type of thing that we experience. Not making that up. We have to realize what is going on out here on the battle of the Bible. This is a very real battle. And our response is, the only response that Pastor Weiler and I have, is we're going to teach the Bible. That is what we're going to do. We're going to do the best of our ability. Some weeks are better than others. We know where God's power is. The power unto salvation is in the Word of God. We're going to do our very best to teach that. Um, You may ask, what's your personal responsibility? What is your role? Um, How does this apply to you? How can you help? You know, your role, just as my role is, just as Gerald's role is, is to have faith that the Scripture is going to do its work. When you're at home with your family and you're reading the Scripture to them alone and you're exhorting them in the Scripture, 
and you're teaching them, catechizing them, whatever you want to call it, helping them memorize the Bible books, helping them to memorize verses, to know the Ten Commandments. When you go home, teach God's Word. It will save souls. It's a mechanism that God uses to believe. You know, Timothy's grandmother and mother, Lois and Eunice, or Eunice and Lois, I don't remember which way they go, they believed in the power of the Scriptures. They genuinely believed in that. And they instructed Timothy from his youth. Because they knew it's the power of the Word that saves. And you need to follow that same pattern for your own families. You need to follow that same pattern for your children. It's the same when we do evangelism and outreach, folks. We've got a lot of that going on, whether it's in the parks, whether it's at neighborhoods, whether it's in VBS, whether it is in Awana and helping the kids memorize verses. We need to believe that the Bible does what it says it will do, that the Word of God will transform lives. And we need to pray that the Holy Spirit will do His work in transforming those lives and those hearts. And when we do that, all the glory goes to Him. So we pay attention to the public reading of Scripture or family reading of Scripture, the exhortation and instruction, and teaching. That's what we do. We pray, and then we, we do it in, within the earshot of the hearers. Romans 10 says, How will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him in whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? You're the preacher. How will they preach unless they're sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news of good things. That's how beautiful the feet are. In all the ministries that we do, we are completely dependent on the Holy Spirit and His Word. That is what we do. Lastly, as pastors, we need your biblical understanding and appreciate that you'll understand that we're going to keep the Bible preeminent. It is going to be front and center. And um, we aren't going to pursue a lot of extravagant programs, fancy light shows, or rock bands. We don't need to do that to lure people in. Um, We, like the church in Philadelphia that I mentioned last week, we hold fast to the word. We'll be commended for it. Here I'm going to read for you Revelation 3, verse 7. John was told, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David... That's Jesus. Who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. Because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Then in verse 10, John writes, Because you have kept my word of perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Christ is coming with his reward. He's coming with that crown. We've got to hold fast to the word of God. That's what we do. It can become really enticing. Look across the street. Look at big buildings. Look at crowds coming in and out and say, maybe we should be working more like that. We've got to look at what God sees as success and watch Him grow it. Watch God grow it. 
God gauges success by those who stick to his word. I think pretty much everyone agrees here. For the most part, we're on the same page. You know, a lot can be said about music. Gerald does a great job with music. Um, we're going to continue to improve music. A lot of our music's reflective of who we have. It's very good. Music for who sings and who plays instruments and other things, who does evangelism, people who work with children, people who take care of the preparing for the Iwanas. We got a lot of stuff. We got a lot of really good workers here. We're going to talk to some of them tonight about the children's ministry. So we have a lot of talent. We don't have to make church about us and what we want. I'm going to wrap up there. Let's hold fast to the faithful word. It's what provides salvation to the hearers. Let's make it all about Christ and his word. Let's pray that he'll transform souls through the preaching and sharing of the word and gospel tracts and teaching and street preaching and sharing with these little children that are going to come in just a few weeks now and watch God work. Let's pray. Holy Father, we do understand why you put this passage in here, Lord, for Timothy and for us. Lord, that, that your word is powerful. Lord, it's living and active, sharp, Lord, able to divide joints and marrow. Lord, it is, it is the way by which people are saved, by hearing the word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, Lord, and we know that. So it's no wonder, Lord, we don't doubt why you say to pay special attention to the reading of Scripture, to exhortation and instruction and teaching. Lord, we're going to do that. Lord, we pray that you'll open our hearts, open others' hearts, Lord, as we share with them your, your living, enduring word, Lord. The seed that is imperishable, that, that uh, springs up into, into eternal life, Lord. And we pray here, Lord, if there's anyone who hasn't understood your word, doesn't have that understanding of the bad news. As in Ezra's day, Ezra's day, there was sin. There was separation from God. It led to death. Lord, that understanding of the word that pierces us and, and that conviction of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that makes us fear death. Lord, and we pray that you would, would help us here to understand that the scriptures are about life. It's the living word of God. And it's about the salvation that is offered to all who will trust in Christ. Lord, that, that he died for our sins. He died for our mistakes and our faults, Lord. All he asks that we give our lives to honor him, Lord. And you've promised that throughout eternity we'll be able to dwell with you, dwell with one another, Lord, and join the un, unending hymns of praise, Lord, that are focused upon you. Lord, we pray if there's any heart here who has not responded to the word of God, that you would change that heart, that you would save that individual, Lord and that you would bring him him or her to faith in Christ. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.